part one chapter five of lady byron vindicated a history of the byron controversy by harriet beecher stowe this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter five the attack on lady byron's grave part two the guiccioli book has several chapters devoted to lord byron's peculiar virtues and under the one devoted to magnanimity and heroism his forgiving disposition receives special attention the climax of all is stated to be that he forgave lady byron all the world knew that since he had declared this fact in a very noisy and impassioned manner in the fourth canto of child harold together with a statement of the wrongs which he forgave but the guiccioli thinks his virtue at this period has not been enough appreciated in her view it rose to the sublime she says of lady byron an absolute moral monstrosity an anomaly in the history of types of female hideousness had succeeded in showing itself in the light of magnanimity but false as was this high quality in lady byron so did it shine out in him true and admirable the position in which lady byron had placed him and where she continued to keep him by her harshness silence and strange refusals was one of those which cause such suffering that the highest degree of self-control seldom suffices to quiet the promptings of human weakness and to cause persons of even slight sensibility to preserve moderation yet with his sensibility and the knowledge of his worth how did he act what did he say i will not speak of his farewell of the care he took to shield her from blame by throwing it on others by taking much too large a share to himself with like vivacity and earnestness does the narrator now proceed to make an incarnate angel of her subject by the simple process of denying everything that he himself ever confessed everything that has ever been confessed in regard to him by his best friends he has been in the world as an angel unawares from his cradle his guardian did not properly appreciate him and is consequently mentioned as that wicked lord carlyle thomas moore is never to be sufficiently condemned for the facts told in his biography byron's own frank and lawless admissions of evil are set down to a peculiar inability he had for speaking the truth about himself sometimes about his near relations all which does not in the least discourage the authoress from giving a separate chapter on lord byron's love of truth in the matter of his relations with women she complacently repeats what sounds rather oddly as coming from her lord byron's own assurance that he never seduced a woman and also the equally convincing statement that he had told her the guiccioli that his married fidelity to his wife was perfect she discusses Moore's account of the mistress in boys' clothes, who used to share Byron's apartments in college and ride with him to the races, and whom he presented to ladies as his brother. She has her own view of this matter. The disguised boy was a lady of rank and fashion who sought Lord Byron's chambers, as, we are informed, noble ladies everywhere, both in Italy and England, were constantly in the habit of doing, throwing themselves at his feet and imploring permission to become his handmaids 
in the author's own words quote, feminine overtures still continued to be made to lord byron but the fumes of incense never hid from his sight his ideal end quote. we are told that in the case of these poor ladies generally quote, disenchantment took place on his side without a corresponding result on the other thence many heartbreakings end quote. Nevertheless, we are informed that there followed the indiscretions of these ladies, quote, none of those proceedings that the world readily forgives, but which his feelings as a man of honor would have condemned, end quote. As to drunkenness and all that, we are informed that he was an anchorite. Pages are given to an account of the biscuits and soda water that on this and that occasion were found to be the sole means of sustenance to this ethereal creature, as to the story of using his wife's money the lady gives directly in the face of his own letters and journals the same account given before by medwin and which caused such merriment when talked over in the noctes club that he had with her only a marriage portion of ten thousand pounds and that on the separation he not only paid it back but doubled it footnote in the Noctes of November 1824, Christopher North says, quote, I don't call Medwin a liar. Whether Byron bammed him or he, by virtue of his own stupidity, was the sole and sufficient bummifier of himself, I know not. End quote. A note says that Murray had been much shocked by Byron's misstatements to Medwin as to the money matters with him. The note goes on to say, quote, Medwin could not have invented them for they were mixed up with acknowledged facts and the presumption is that byron mystified his gallant acquaintance he was fond of such tricks End quote. End of footnote. so on the authoress goes sewing right and left the most transparent absurdities and misstatements with what carlyle well calls quote, a composed stupidity and a cheerful infinitude of ignorance End quote who should know if not she to be sure had not byron told her all about it and was not his family motto cred byron the blackwood having a dim suspicion that this confused style of attack and defence in reference to the two parties under consideration may not have great weight itself proceeds to make the book an occasion for reopening the controversy of lord byron with his wife the rest of the review is devoted to a powerful attack on lady byron's character the most fearful attack on the memory of a dead woman we have ever seen made by a living man the author proceeds like a lawyer to gather up arrange and restate in a most workmanlike manner the confused accusations of the book anticipating the objection that such a reopening of the inquiry was a violation of the privacy due to womanhood and to the feelings of a surviving family he says that though marriage usually is a private matter which the world has no right to intermeddle with or discuss yet quote, lord byron's was an exceptional case it is not too much to say that had his marriage been a happy one the course of events of the present century might have been materially changed that the genius which poured itself forth in don juan and cain might have flowed in far different channels that the ardent love of freedom which sent him to perish 
at six and thirty at missolonghi might have inspired a long career at home and that we might at this moment have been appealing to the counsels of his experience and wisdom at an age not exceeding that which was attained by wellington lyndhurst and brougham whether the world would have been a gainer or a loser by the exchange is a question which every man must answer for himself according to his own tastes and opinions but the possibility of such a change in the course of events warrants us in treating what would otherwise be a strictly private matter as one of public interest more than half a century has elapsed the actors have departed from the stage the curtain has fallen and whether it will ever again be raised so as to reveal the real facts of the drama may as we have already observed be well doubted but the time has arrived when we may fairly gather up the fragments of evidence clear them as far as possible from the incrustations of passion prejudice and malice and place them in such order as if possible to enable us to arrive at some probable conjecture as to what the skeleton of the drama originally was here the writer proceeds to put together all the facts of lady byron's case just as an adverse lawyer would put them as against her and for the husband the plea is made vigorously and ably and with an air of indignant severity as of an honest advocate who is thoroughly convinced that he is pleading the cause of a wronged man who has been ruined in name shipwrecked in life and driven to an early grave by the arts of a bad woman a woman all the more horrible that her malice was disguised under the cloak of religion having made an able statement of facts adroitly leaving out one that lord byron might have had an open examination in court if he had only persisted in refusing the deed of separation of which the blackwood writer could not have been ignorant had he studied the case carefully enough to know all the others he proceeds to sum up against the criminal thus quote, we would deal tenderly with the memory of lady byron few women have been juster objects of compassion it would seem as if nature and fortune had vied with each other which should be most lavish of her gifts and yet that some malignant power had rendered all their bounty to no effect rank beauty wealth and mental powers of no common order were hers yet they were of no avail to secure her happiness the spoilt child of seclusion restraint and parental idolatry a fate alike evil for both cast her into the arms of the spoilt child of genius passion and the world what real or fancied wrongs she suffered we may never know but those which she inflicted are sufficiently apparent it is said that there are some poisons so subtle that they will destroy life and yet leave no trace of their action the murderer who uses them may escape the vengeance of the law but he is not the less guilty so the slanderer who makes no charge who deals in hints and insinuations who knows melancholy facts he would not willingly divulge things too painful to state who forbears expresses pity sometimes even affection for his victim who shrugs his shoulders looks with the significant eye which learns to lie with silence is far more guilty than he who tells the bold falsehood which may be met and answered and who braves the punishment which must follow upon detection lady byron has been called the moral clytemnestra of her lord 
the moral bravier would have been a truer designation the conclusion at which we arrive is that there is no proof whatever that lord byron was guilty of any act that need have caused a separation or prevented a reunion and that the imputations upon him rest on the vaguest conjecture that whatever real or fancied wrongs lady byron may have endured are shrouded in an impenetrable mist of her own creation a poisonous miasma in which she enveloped the character of her husband raised by her breath and which her breath only could have dispersed she dies and makes no sign oh god forgive her as we have been obliged to review accusations on lady byron founded on old greek tragedy so now we are forced to abridge a passage from a modern conversations lexicon that we may understand what sort of comparisons are deemed in good taste in a conservative english review when speaking of ladies of rank in their graves under the article Brunvilliers, we find as follows quote, Marguerite de Braul, Marchioness of Bronvilliers. The singular atrocity of this woman gives her a sort of infamous claim to notice. She was born in Paris in 1651, being daughter of Dabray, lieutenant civil of Paris, who married her to the Marquis of Bronvilliers. Although possessed of attractions to captivate lovers, she was for some time much attached to her husband, but at length became madly in love with a Gascon officer. Her father imprisoned the officer in the Bastille, and while there he learned the art of compounding subtle and most mortal poisons, and when he was released he taught it to the lady, who exercised it with such success that in one year her father, sister, and two brothers became her victims she professed the utmost tenderness for her victims and nursed them assiduously on her father she is said to have made eight attempts before she succeeded she was very religious and devoted to works of charity and visited the hospitals a great deal where it is said she tried her poisons on the sick people have made loud outcries lately both in america and england about violating the repose of the dead we should like to know what they call this is this then what they mean by respecting the dead let any man imagine a leading review coming out with language equally brutal about his own mother or any dear and revered friend men of america men of england what do you think of this when lady byron was publicly branded with the names of the foulest ancient and foulest modern assassins and lord byron's mistress was publicly taken by the hand and encouraged to go on and prosper in her slanders by one of the oldest and most influential british reviews what was said and what was done in england that is a question we should be glad to have answered nothing was done that ever reached us across the water and why was nothing done is this language of a kind to be passed over in silence was it no offence to the house of wentworth to attack the pure character of its late venerable head and to brand her in her sacred grave with the name of one of the vilest of criminals might there not properly have been an indignant protest of family solicitors against this insult to the person and character of the baroness wentworth if virtue went for nothing benevolence for nothing a long life of service to humanity for nothing 
one would at least have thought that in aristocratic countries rank might have had its rights to decent consideration and its guardians to rebuke the violation of those rights we americans understand little of the advantages of rank but we did understand that it secured certain decorums to people both while living and when in their graves from lady byron's whole history in life and in death it would appear that we were mistaken what a life was hers was ever a woman more evidently desirous of the delicate and secluded privileges of womanhood of the sacredness of individual privacy was ever a woman so rudely dragged forth and exposed to the hardened vulgar and unfeeling gaze of mere curiosity her maiden secrets of love thrown open to be handled by Rui, elderly gentleman the sanctities of her marriage chamber desecrated by leering satyrs her parents and best friends traduced and slandered till one indignant public protest was exhorted from her as by the rack a protest which seems yet to quiver in every word with the indignation of outraged womanly delicacy then followed coarse blame and coarser comment blame for speaking at all and blame for not speaking more one manly voice raised for her in honorable protest was silenced and overborne by the universal roar of ridicule and reprobation and henceforth what refuge only this remained let them that suffer according to the will of god commit the keeping of their souls to him as to a faithful creator lady byron turned to this refuge in silence and filled up her life with a noble record of charities and humanities so pure was she so childlike so artless so loving that those who knew her best feel to this day that a memorial of her is like a relic of a saint and could not all this preserve her grave from insult oh england england i speak in sorrow of heart to those who must have known loved and revered lady byron and ask them of what were you thinking when you allowed a paper of so established literary rank as the blackwood to present and earnestly recommend to our new world such a compendium of lies as the guiccioli book is the great english-speaking community whose waves toss from maine to california whose literature is yet to come back in a thousand voices to you a thing to be so despised if as the solicitors of the wentworth family observe you might be entitled to treat with silent contempt the slanders of a mistress against a wife was it safe to treat with equal contempt the endorsement and recommendation of those slanders by one of your oldest and most powerful literary authorities no european magazine has ever had the weight and circulation in america that the blackwood has held in the days of my youth when new england was a comparatively secluded section of the earth the wit and genius of the noctes ambrosian were in the mouths of men and maidens even in our most quiet mountain towns there years ago we saw all lady byron's private affairs discussed and felt the weight of christopher north's decisions against her shelton mackenzie in his american edition speaks of the american circulation of blackwood being greater than that in england footnote in the history of blackwood's magazine prefaced to the american edition of eighteen fifty four mackenzie says of the noctes papers 
quote, great as was their popularity in england it was peculiarly in america that their high merit and undoubted originality received the heartiest recognition and appreciation nor is this wonderful when it is considered that for one reader of blackwood's magazine in the old country there cannot be less than fifty in the new End quote. End footnote it was and is now reprinted monthly and besides that littell's magazine reproduces all its striking articles and they come with the weight of long-established position from the very fact that it has long been considered the tory organ and the supporter of aristocratic orders all its admissions against the character of individuals in the privileged classes have a double force when blackwood therefore boldly denounces a lady of high rank as a modern brinvilliers and no sensation is produced and no remonstrance follows what can people in the new world suppose but that lady byron's character was a point entirely given up that her depravity was so well established and so fully conceded that nothing was to be said and that even the defenders of aristocracy were forced to admit it i have been blamed for speaking on this subject without consulting lady byron's friends trustees and family more than ten years had elapsed since i had any intercourse with england and i knew none of them how was i to know that any of them were living i was astonished to learn for the first time by the solicitor's letters that there were trustees who held in their hands all lady byron's carefully prepared proofs and documents by which this falsehood might immediately have been refuted if they had spoken they might have saved all this confusion even if bound by restrictions for a certain period of time they still might have called on a christian public to frown down such a cruel and indecent attack on the character of a noble lady who had been a benefactress to so many in england they might have stated that the means of wholly refuting the slanders of the blackwood were in their hands and only delayed in coming forth from regard to the feelings of some in this generation then might they not have announced her life and letters that the public might have the same opportunity as themselves for knowing and judging lady byron by her own writings had this been done i had been most happy to have remained silent i have been astonished that any one should have supposed this speaking on my part to be anything less than it is the severest act of self-sacrifice that one friend can perform for another and the most solemn and difficult tribute to justice that a human being can be called upon to render i have been informed that the course i have taken would be contrary to the wishes of my friend i think otherwise i know her strong sense of justice and her reverence for truth nothing ever moved her to speak to the public but an attack on the honour of the dead in her statement she says of her parents there is no other near relative to vindicate their memory from insult i am therefore compelled to break the silence i had hoped always to have observed if there was any near relative to vindicate lady byron's memory i have no evidence of the fact and i considered the utter silence to be strong evidence to the contrary in all the storm of obloquy and rebuke that has raged in consequence of my speaking i have had two unspeakable sources of joy first that they could not touch her and second that they could not blind the all-seeing god 
it is worth being in darkness to see the stars it has been said that i have drawn on lady byron's name greater obloquy than ever before i deny the charge nothing fouler has been asserted of her than the charges in the blackwood because nothing fouler could be asserted no satyr's hoof has ever crushed this pearl deeper in the mire than the hoof of the blackwood but none of them have defiled it or trodden it so deep that god cannot find it in the day when he maketh up his jewels i have another word as an american to say about the contempt shown to our great people in thus suffering the materials of history to be falsified to subserve the temporary purposes of family feeling in england lord byron belongs not properly either to the byrons or the wentworths he is not one of their family jewels to be locked up in their cases he belongs to the world for which he wrote to which he appealed and before which he dragged his reluctant delicate wife to a publicity equal with his own the world has therefore a right to judge him we americans have been made accessories after the fact to every insult and injury that lord byron and the literary men of his day have heaped upon lady byron we have been betrayed into injustice and a complicity with villainy after lady byron had nobly lived down slanders in england and died full of years and honors the blackwood takes occasion to reopen the controversy by recommending a book full of slanders to a rising generation who knew nothing of the past what was the consequence in america my attention was first called to the result not by reading the blackwood article but by finding in a popular monthly magazine two long articles the one an enthusiastic recommendation of the guiccioli book and the other a lamentation over the burning of the autobiography as a lost chapter in history both articles represented lady byron as a cold malignant mean persecuting woman who had been her husband's ruin they were so full of falsehoods and misstatements as to astonish me not long after a literary friend wrote to me will you can you reconcile it in your conscience to sit still and allow that mistress so to slander that wife you perhaps the only one knowing the real facts and able to set them forth upon this i immediately began collecting and reading the various articles and the book and perceived that the public of this generation were in a way of having false history created uncontradicted under their own eyes i claim for my country men and women our right to true history for years the popular literature has held up publicly before our eyes the facts as to this man and this woman and called on us to praise or condemn let us have truth when we are called upon to judge it is our right there is no conceivable obligation on a human being greater than that of absolute justice it is the deepest personal injury to an honorable mind to be made through misrepresentation an accomplice in injustice when a noble name is accused any person who possesses truth which might clear it and withholds that truth is guilty of a sin against human nature and the inalienable rights of justice i claim that i have not only a right but an obligation to bring in my solemn testimony upon this subject 
for years and years the silence policy has been tried and what has it brought forth as neither word nor deed could be proved against lady byron her silence has been spoken of as a monstrous unnatural crime a poisonous miasma in which she enveloped the name of her husband very well since silence is the crime i thought i would tell the world that lady byron had spoken christopher north years ago when he condemned her for speaking said that she should speak further Quote, she should speak or someone for her one word would suffice that one word has been spoken this ends chapter five the attack on lady byron's grave and this ends part one of the book and now we move on to part two read for you by michelle fry baton rouge louisiana in january two thousand eighteen